Welcome to the Pathologist Cut podcast. This RCPA podcast highlights the critical work of pathologists and the integral part pathology plays in medicine and healthcare. It is my pleasure today to talk with Dr. Annabelle Farnsworth. She is a specialist gynecological histopathologist and cytopathologist at Douglas Hanley Moyer Pathology, Sydney, New South Wales. Here she is both director of cytopathology and medical director, a post she has held since January 2000. Dr. Farnsworth is well known throughout Australia and internationally for her contributions to cytology and gynecological pathology. Well, thank you, Annabelle, for your time today. Cervical cancer is a preventable cancer, yet it is the fourth most common form of cancer among women worldwide. Can you explain why this is the case? Cervical cancer has been uh, one of the most investigated and studied cancers um, over a good 60-odd years. And it's interesting that we know a lot more about cervical cancer than we do about most cancers. For instance, we do know that it's an actual HPV-related disease, meaning it's related to an infection with a human papillomavirus. Before there was a screening program or screening programs existed, it was the commonest form of death and form of cancer um, in any country, and it was an absolute scourge because it affected young women, um, often in the primes of their life, but it was uh, realised many years ago in the 1940s that if you screen, meaning if you look for the precancerous cells, you could actually find the precancerous, you know, when, when the cancer was still in a precancerous phase, which means it can be completely treated and cured. And so that was really the beginning of um, cervical cytology. Cytology, we mean we were able to take cells from the um, area of the, of the cervix and have a look at them under the microscope that allowed us to, to see those precancerous changes. But, of course, to have the skill base and the knowledge base to do that surprisingly complex process was really only available in countries where there was well-developed pathology, medical laboratory science um, area. And so there were many countries in the world, in the less developed countries, where the skill base and the technology literally just wasn't available. And so we really have seen over the last 20 years this emergence of the countries that had access to a screening program, and in those days it was just cytology, the incidence of uh, cervical cancer and the mortality from cervical cancer, so the, that's the rate of its occurrence and the deaths, have just fallen dramatically. Whereas in countries where there was not access to these technologies, basically the rates of cervical cancer in women stayed very much the same. So they stayed really high. And we're talking about countries even in our neighbourhoods, so places like Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, um, the South Sea Island countries, right to this very day, they uh, have incredible rates of cervical cancer and cervical cancer remains the commonest form of death in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, for instance. So it's actually one of the great tragedies of medicine and I suppose the inequities that you see in medicine are really highlighted um, in the cervical cancer area. So, yes, in those countries it's um, a real scourge. So that's really why it's happening. And it also, I suppose, highlights how important cervical screening is. And it's 
like many things, you know, when it's not a huge issue, like cervical cancer is not a huge issue anymore in countries like Australia and New Zealand, then people forget um, that that it can be a, an absolute killer of young women. So that's a really amazing thing you've just said, that there's been a huge impact on mortality of women worldwide, directly linked to the role of pathologists and cytologists with cervical cytology. That's, a, that's quite an incredible statement. Yes, it, it, it's actually true. And, um, for instance, both Australia and New Zealand, it's, I personally think it's one of the unsung kind of great success stories of both pathology but also public health because in both countries it's treated as um, a public health program, meaning they're centrally organised by government. And the other thing that we've learned about uh, over the last 20 to 30 years is that for these programs to work, they have to be run with appropriate checks and balances. You have to have recruitment. And I think it's really interesting that... Um, the, both countries, both Australia and New Zealand, recognise this and so they have in place all of the quality assurance measures, all of the accountability measures, and these days they understand the risks that are involved in a cervical screening program and have had a risk-based analysis and quality programs that are now becoming absolutely the norm in all areas of pathology. But, you know, I like to think that cervical cytology led the way in, in many of those areas as well. And certainly pathology and pathologists have been, well, right at the very centre. And as I said earlier, it was the lack of their school base um, that, that then created the, this kind of split between the um, well-developed and the underdeveloped mm. countries. And we now come into this latest phase of cervical screening with the development of what's called the cervical screening test, replacing yeah. the pap smear not too long ago. Yeah. Can you describe the difference between the two? Yes. Well, because um, this disease, as I said, has been so well studied, and I suppose it's because there's been screening program and because we've also had scientists involved in looking down the microscope at these cells, the discovery that this was a viral-caused cancer is, is also quite spectacularly interesting. And really that the knowledge about that emerged because... Uh, the cancer was behaving like a sexually transmitted disease. So it, occurred, it occurred more commonly in women with more sexual partners who onset of sexual activity was earlier. And, in fact, people were looking for the vector or perhaps the causative agent, I should say, you know, right back in the 1970s. And then with the development of molecular techniques, they discovered the human papilloma virus. And really, as they say, the rest is history because... Uh, they've actually done the, all of the genetic work that actually shows how the virus integrates into the genome of the cell and switches on all of the cancer-producing um, cellular mechanisms. So, of course, what happened then was, although when we look down the microscope, we see the effect of this virus on the cells, the development also then came that we were able to detect the virus. Now, the virus was not able to be grown in laboratories, which why it was discovered fairly late, but you could detect it using advanced molecular techniques where you actually were able to look for the viral um, DNA. And the development of those really accurate uh, viral DNA tests then got everyone thinking that maybe a much more accurate way of doing 
this screening test would be to look for the virus. So you could theoretically pick it up a little bit earlier at the same time. It, it's like everything. There's no perfect test in the world. But, of course, the cervical cytology screening test was a very good test, but it did not pick up all the cancers. And so the human papillomavirus test is what we call more sensitive, meaning you'll detect more virus, which means theoretically you detect more disease. And that's been the theory behind the replacement of the um, what we call the cytology aspect with the HPV. But the, I think the other thing, and back to the conversation earlier, was about um, the fact that you didn't have the scientists and the pathologists in underdeveloped countries to look down the microscope at cells. But with the HPV testing um, systems, that is available throughout the world. It's a much more robust, um, it's a more device-based test, which means that it can be transported more easily and can be interpreted. So there has been a great deal of hope that the availability then of this particular HPV test will allow um, testing for this disease in the underdeveloped countries where the uh, rates of cancer are still really high. That's a really interesting um, concept, isn't it, that we've been able to bring a more advanced understanding of the etiology of cervical cancer and, and um, hopefully reduce that disparity. Mm -hmm. You commented earlier that the, the cytology really led the way in, in setting up quality systems in the laboratory, and hopefully those quality systems will carry over to the use of the, um, the actual HPV testing as well. Yes, well, um, I, I hope so too. And, of course, um, that's one of the issues where, you know, it's all very well to say you can send out a, a black box in inverted commas out into, you know, to do the kind of testing, but you've got to make sure that it's accurate. And, of course, in pathology it's very simplistic to think that you can just put a sample into a, a machine and out comes the answer. All of those um, analyzers have to be quality assured in the same meticulous fashion as we do other things and certainly um, in Australia where we have made the change the change is still um, on its way in New Zealand the um, quality assurance processes have been well uh, thought out and um, and we you know working in the area are very conscious of making sure that that is in fact the case mm -hmm. the other interesting thing about HPV is certainly in the the uh, well-developed countries is that it's a more sensitive test. So whereas we were very worried about false negatives in the pap smear screening program, in the new program, the issue of false positives, meaning over-treating people, becomes um, an issue um, that we also need to be conscious of. So is that where um, the someone with a positive HPV then goes on and has the cytology testing. Is that how that fits? Yeah, that's very much the case. And, in fact, it's interesting that in Australia that's proving to be an absolutely crucial part of the um, program. We, meaning Australia, was really the first country in the world to, to move ahead with this. And so we um, are lucky in the fact that we have um, a double testing regime so that if someone does test positive for HPV, they will then go on and have um, a cytology sample made. And uh, that cytology result is proving to be very, very helpful in making sure that um, the HPV isn't just, you know, a commensal, 
HPV is incredibly common. They um, Every study shows about 80% of people will have an HPV infection in some time of their life. But of course, the people that get disease is like only a tiny percentage of that. And cytology is still such a good um, tool to, it's really a biological marker. I mean, people are looking for fancy molecular biological markers, but really cytology is a biological marker that you can actually see and um, is indicating that the HPV virus is actually affecting the cells in a particular way. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Can, coming back to the cervical screening program, both the Australian and the New Zealand one, who, who should be getting tested these days? Well, the current recommendations are for women over the age of 25 and up to the age of 75, believe it or not, in Australia. Um, And so that's really quite a long um, program. And I think that in days gone by, we screened younger women, but the rates of high-grade disease or cancers in young women is quite small, even though the rates of HPV infection are very high because, of course, it's... um, the HPV infection that um, you get when people are sexually active. So at the commencement of that kind of time period of people's lives, the HPV rates are really high. But, of course, it does take a while to develop disease. And so that's why, um, again, all the studies show that commencing testing at 25 is quite safe. In Australia, as I said, we've extended the screening recommendation age out to 75, full stop, if you like. Women are living a lot longer and, of course, that is an area that's becoming very interesting, um, in particularly for me, because there's, a, there's surprisingly higher rates of HPV in older women, not necessarily with, associated with disease. And that's going to be an area of quite interesting research to see what it, that means. Um, but, of course, we do know that older women can develop cervical cancer um, and um, so it's still worth continuing to have cervical screening tests even into, what well, you know, kind of an older age group. So, so you've mentioned COVID-19 is creating problems and challenges in a whole yeah. variety of spheres. What else has COVID-19, how has that affected cytology and cervical screening programs? You need people to enter into the program, what we call recruitment. And, of course, the critical thing in a public health program is public health messaging and getting women to realise that this is an important part of their general health and what a great thing it is. Now, in Australia, and and I'm sorry I don't have any data from New Zealand, but in Australia the government actually commissioned a look at what would be the impact of the fact that um, because of COVID, as we know, um, the um, provision or the availability or the keenness to or the ability to to go and look after all the other aspects of somebody's health have been um, kind of left behind a little bit, both with, you know, the significant lockdowns that both New Zealand and Australia has had, the overwhelming of the medical system by um, looking after COVID patients and just the general focus on, on COVID, which is completely understandable. But the messaging from the Australian government is that um, because of the lack of recruitment or the lack of participation in the program in Australia, um, there could be a measurable increase in the number of cancers. Uh, There could be a measurable increase in the number of young women with this disease. There could actually be 
women presenting um, with later stage disease, which means it's slightly more um, at risk. And there could also be failure of women to do adequate follow-up because, again, um, the hesitancy to go into or, or enter into the, into the health system. And it's a measurable risk. It's not huge, but I guess um, one of those things that we really need to be very conscious of as a medical profession is to encourage women, encourage women to continue to have uh, their cervical screening tests um, irrespective of COVID if they can. And it's a, it's a really important health message that we need to mm. keep talking about. Coming back to vaccination, um, we, we can sort of think of vaccines in sort of two ways. One is in the New Zealand-Australia um, system and, and then the other one is the in, the in the health jurisdictions that haven't got a proper screening program. How are we faring in terms of reaching elimination in New Zealand-Australia and elsewhere in the world? In, in Australia, we've, been, we've had a hugely successful screening program. Um, commenced in 2007, um, and it's given in the first year of high school. Uh, it commenced with girls, but it was extended to vaccinate boys in 2013. And so our coverage rates are up around 75%. And with everybody's, you know, keen interest now in COVID vaccination, we all know that if you've got a vaccination rate of over 70%, you're doing extremely well. And so Australia certainly um, has achieved that, and it, and it's a great it's a great um, you know again a credit to the health um, programs that the government has put in place. New Zealand was a little bit slower off the mark. Um, certainly, they introduced it early on, but there were um, there was a little bit of vaccine hesitancy. We know all about that. So. It, it reached about 50% vaccination rate, but I now know it, it's, it's, it, it's gone much higher than that. So in both countries, we're looking at, it, at really high coverage rates. And we now can measure the falling rates of um, HPV-related diseases. So, so that's a really good thing. In our um, underdeveloped countries, it's still a little bit um, of a worry um, the, the country that's probably the most impressive, which does go to show, and it's not a, really a third world country, but our northern neighbour, Malaysia, um, had a group of, actually was a gynaecological oncologist who was a very enthusiastic woman who was able to persuade the government. And remember, it's a, it's a Muslim faith um, community. So it had issues, but um, they introduced a vaccination program, hugely successful in about 2010, 2011. And it's been, again, it's a huge success. And it's really an example of if you um, get the government on board, if you get your public health messaging correct, uh, you can make this huge difference. And so their coverage rates have been excellent and it's been well accepted by families and young women um, and so it's done really well but there are other countries and I, I I do have to just mention this because it's worth knowing that a country like Japan which is you know a highly developed wealthy nation um, developed a huge kind of issue with um, vaccine hesitancy and so their rates of vaccination are, are negligible and their rates of cervical cancer are incredibly high and you know women are still dying from cervical cancer in a country like japan 
So it really is worth just remembering, you know, if you look around the world and see, want to see effects or effects or lack of effects, then um, there are certain certain examples. Um, so let's just hope that once COVID is conquered and it becomes a, um, you know, the health emergency that we're living through eases, um, other health issues can, you know, we can turn our attention to other significant health issues. So, so there's been this r- remarkable um, experiment almost with of demonstrating the efficacy of vaccine worldwide. And it's, yes. it's a, it seems to be a real tragedy in some jurisdictions, as you've described. And it's wonderful seeing that um, we are making a difference with vaccinations. So who you, you mentioned the phrase um, HPV-related disease. What are, you, what are you incorporating in that group of diseases? Well, that's, um, that's a great question because, of course, human papillomavirus um, is very ubiquitous. It's the same virus that causes common warts on fingers and toes or plantar warts if you've been to the swimming pool. But it um, is associated with um, other cancers. And, in fact, one of the main reasons why Australia extended the vaccination program to include boys was because... Um, Men who have sex with men can get cancers of the lower genital tract as well, and it can be quite a scourge. And you can get oropharyngeal, so cancers of the head and neck can also be associated with HPV. And so it's um, a, a terrific vaccine for for those kind of cancers as well. So it, it's a virus that wherever it is able to infect cells that are turning over rapidly, um, it can become um cancer producing and and so yes so so men can get affected as well as girls Mm. and boys and so um so it's a it's a great vaccine in those instances as well so so vaccinating against hpv um has had some unexpected results absolutely absolutely and um we've all heard of genital warts but the first vaccine that came out Gardasil, and it's a brand name, but it had four viral subtypes in it, and they included um, the two most common cancer-forming viral subtypes. They also included the two um, viral subtypes that cause genital warts. And so um, it's been a fantastic market because the incidence of genital warts has just literally disappeared in in vaccinated populations. So, um, so yes, unexpected consequences, but you know, again, good good markers of of, um, of the the vaccine working really well. What has the vaccine done to sort of the the? Uh, are we getting weirder subtypes of HPV, or is it sort of evolutionary driving the the, the rise of other HPV subtypes? Is that something that's, yeah, that's no, been people, looking at? People thought that might happen, and again, that's a great question. But in truth, um, all the data, and by the way, people are monitoring this all the time. So the big fall um, in HPV-related disease has been in the the vaccine subtypes, so that's type 16 and 18. But the non-vaccine subtypes are still the ones that are causing um, a reasonable amount of disease um, even in vaccinated women, which, of course, comes to the point of um, if there's one message from even... You know, this conversation is to get people to participate in the screening program. And so even if people have been vaccinated, they need to continue to have their cervical screening tests. And that is a message that is um, is not 
has not been well spread and um, it is probably one of the biggest issues certainly we have in Australia, this low level of participation. Yes, we had low level of participation during the COVID um, lockdowns, but the level of participation was already very low. And even amongst really well-educated, knowledgeable people, um, the number of times I've heard people say, well, I'm vaccinated and I don't need to have a cervical screening test, um, it's, it's really a common belief and it's actually not correct. So, so just to summarise what you're saying, the vaccine only protects you against nine out of quite a few subtypes yeah. of HPV, but yeah. the HPV test can detect a far wider range of That's subtypes right. that right. people haven't necessarily been vaccinated for. Exactly. Very important message. And more importantly, the nine subtypes um, only was available, you know, here recently. So the great majority of women who have been vaccinated at school are really only vaccinated against two subtypes and there there are, you know, kind of many, many subtypes that can cause cervical cancer. So, yes, you, you need to continue to have cervical screening. Well, Annabelle, it's been wonderful talking to you about cytology or cervical cytology, HPV. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think um, would be important for our listeners to know? No, I think it's just, I think it's, again, don't be frightened. Go and have the test. Um, it uh, could save your life. And I think that's really the, the, the big take-home message. Thank you. And, and finally, you've been a pathologist and you've been a wonderful pathologist and you've done so much. What advice would you consider to someone looking at pathology as a career? I would highly recommend it. Um, I think pathology has always been um, one of the unsung areas of medicine. Of course, uh, the many, many things that I've seen through my working life um, but one of the one of the many good things is that the pathology is has become really central to um, patient management. The inclusions of pathology and pathologists um, in clinical decision making is becoming greater and greater. It's a wonderful scientific discipline that I've particularly enjoyed the science behind it. Um, it's varied. There are many different areas that you can do, um, but it's a really it's a wonderful career that I couldn't recommend more highly. You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut podcast with RCPA President, Dr. Michael Dray. For the latest RCPA updates, make sure you're following us on Facebook and Twitter.